Let me ask you this, John. Would you like to have a breakfast? In my room, say, the Electress of Saxony. Breakfast is the meal where... Well, it's the optimistic meal, John. The days ahead of you. Let's have a breakfast. Cool. It will be cool, John. Hey, maybe we'll go crazy and we'll get a whole spread. Muffins, breakfast breads, etc. Sound good? Very much, Leslie. See you in 10? See you in 10. I don't think he's going to be there in 10, knowing what I know about the program. Hi, everybody. Welcome to McMillan Men. This is the show where we talk about the Amazon Prime show, Patriot. I'm Luke Burbank. Right over there is my friend and fellow Patriot enthusiast, Andrew Walsh. Hello. Hey, Luke. I loved this episode. Obviously, I love this show, but I don't have a great memory of kind of you know, what order of things happened and revisiting this show, watching episode six yesterday, I feel like episode six is where it all came together for me, where it's all about literally the structural dynamics of flow, A to B, A to B, and then this sets the template for the rest of the series, I think. I agree, by the way, yeah, that's the name of this episode. It's season one, episode six, Structural Dynamics of Flow. I was not high last night while watching it, but I was having some what I felt like were breakthroughs about the sort of meta nature of the show and the idea of just, you know, it's the structural dynamics of flow. It's all just pretty much everything that that we're doing in one way or another is just trying to move things from A to B, right? Yes. I mean, the the bag is about A to B. And of course, the um, even... In this, I mean, you have the the blow-by-blow as far as uh, walking us through the episode, but just to mention, like, um, uh, Ed Edward having to get that book from the library, he's trying to get that book and move it from A to B, or maybe, actually, I might be wrong about that. He doesn't actually need to get the book, huh? He just needs to get John's name into the book. But he needs to get that, he needs to get that little card from, from, from A to B. Right. Into the book, the structural dynamics of... Flow. Uh, this episode opens with, and the other thing that's been so fun about rewatching this is really, along with the kind of stoner aspect that I'm now enjoying. Man, this show is about really big things. Um, it's also the just little details. Like I never noticed that th- I didn't really pick up this. The this, this episode opens on this garment factory or this factory in China where they're making these garment bags, and there's a reject uh, bin. And the rejects are going to Value Crest in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't pick up the first time I watched this episode was the moment where John doesn't want to use this particular kind of garment bag because he realizes that it will be too easy for a random airport employee to see that there's money in there. Like he has misgivings about this particular bag and he is not wrong. And talk about attention to detail. I had not, you know, the first time I was watching this, you just don't pick up on all the details because you don't know exactly what's going on and, and what to watch for. But I had totally not noticed 
or I didn't recall noticing that it was going into a reject bin for like a kind of a one of those stores, like a Filene's Basement or um, yes. what do they call them around here? That They're like you have the brand name stores. Burlington, you, Burlington yeah. Coat Factory. Uh, TJ Maxx, Mervyn's, mm-hmm. right, and uh, and so when they're showing that bag being pushed through the cart, knowing it's going to go to a store like that, and you just see the little thread that didn't get tamped mm-hmm. down on it. Maybe that's the reason it was rejected, or maybe it's there because they they just gave up on the bag. But I I was boy talk about stoner talk again, like you, sober mm-hmm. as it sober as a stone. Um, but uh, I was like obsessed with following that little thread that was waving in the air <laughs> as that thing was getting wheeled around the factory. Yeah, it's actually just a really beautiful piece of uh, filmmaking. It really, is. there at the top, the, the 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 creation of these bags, the bin, the 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 way that they follow it as it's uh, as making its way uh, into John's life. Also, by the way, that seems just like again, that's sort of a metaphor for. John's always getting the fuzzy end of the lollipop in one way or another. It's like, I, presumably, the United States government, they go to Filene's basement and buy this knockoff bag right. or this reject bag. They don't go to, like, uh, you know, a proper luggage store and buy something good. They're like, they're penny wise and pound foolish, or they're penny wise and 10 million euro foolish in this case, where they're buying him a cheap bag that he thinks is going to be a problem and it turns out to be a problem. Um, so, uh, speaking of that bag, uh, Numi, who is played by Hannah May Lee, uh, is sort of uh, introduced in full in this episode. And she sees, uh, she's in the hotel lobby, and she sees Kandahar money drop out of that bag, which tips her off that, that she wants to go follow that guy into the elevator. And so she does. By the way, this is not going to be solvable. I spent, again, it really sounds like I must have eaten a pot brownie before watching this episode, but there is music playing in the lobby, like Muzak playing in the lobby of the hotel as she is chasing, getting to the elevator where Kandahar is with the with the bag full of money. And it's killing me that I can't figure out what the Muzak is in the background. Would it be too annoying to just play it real quick because I know I think you've got do you have the the episode up yeah I have the show open here so this is at the very beginning before the credits where she sees the money kind of fall out of the bag is this what we're talking about here yep when she sees the money fall out of the bag she's in the lobby of the hotel the Muzak playing in the background I really like to focus in on the important (laughs) uh, major plot points of the show no I know this song that's playing in the background I can't place this driving me nuts Okay, as long as we've already talked about the tiny little thread coming out of the bag, then we can move on to the big things, like the music in the background. Let's take a listen. I'm not going to be any help, man. I'm sorry. I was worried it's about too that. too faint, but maybe there's one fellow stoner out there who knows <laughs> what I'm talking about. I stopped. I rewound it. I tried to sing it out loud. I thought maybe it's a Van Morrison song mm. that's been musicatized. Anyway, uh, that is not important. What is important uh, is that uh, now Numi is part of the plot. 
Uh, we're going to find out a lot more about her in subsequent episodes. Uh, we cut to out in the street where now the cops are picking up all of Numi's random items as uh, John is walking by. Of course, there's the dog leash, the aquarium, the clarinet, and the bag, which he can't uh, get to in time. Um, uh, and then we uh, we get the credits, and now it's Leslie once again staring at an open mini bar door. Let's close things that close. Apparently, his polite message to the front desk fell on deaf ears. They're still not closing things that close in his hotel room. Let me ask you about that. Is there any chance – this is a thought I had while watching it – is there any chance that the first time it was definitely mm. their mistake, they left it open – and then he got a glimpse of it. And now, I, for some reason, we see him again staring at this, kind of rubbing his lips, you know, which is kind of a, a, often a telltale sign of addiction, at least in TV shows and books. I'm, right. thinking, I'm thinking of The Shining uh, in the book. Jack Torrance is always <laughs> rubbing his lips when he wants a drink. Um, I wondered if maybe this time he opened things that open. And now he's just like ah. really racked with temptation. And, and he's almost like um, he's almost drinking it in with his eyes. Right. Well, uh, that's very possible because what we're realizing in this episode is that John is really disrupting Leslie's sobriety. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> like, I mean, there's just a bunch of different times where it's like Leslie is Leslie is is uh, is hanging by a thread and it's because of John and it is disorienting and disrupting his his whole life. And without being able to be centered, without being able to just like know how his day is going to go and know what kind of uh, – sort of output he's going to get from his employees the 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 randomness it would feel of john lakeman's uh existence in leslie's life is not good for his sobriety i could be wrong about this too but i i also wonder if somehow john is triggering in him um memories and emotions regarding his own son now it doesn't seem like mm. his son is an is a fuck up Excuse my French. Um, quite the opposite. It seems Lay like son, up. <laughs> there you go. Um, uh, it seems like he's actually title? probably not. Uh, it seems like he's a pretty successful guy. So I could be wrong here because his problems with John is that John seems like a fuck up. Le fuck up. Um, but uh, I, for some reason, I feel like we're mm -hmm. starting to get into this territory where he's also. We know that he's got a strong, kind of a tough relationship with his son, and in the conversation that we just heard at the top of the show when they're talking about breakfast, he really wants to make it right, and he wants to repair his relationship with John the same way he probably wants to repair his relationship with his kid. Yeah, you know, Leslie, for all of his kind of like, I don't know, bluster and. You know, not being a, a particularly warm guy, I kind of give him credit in this episode. I think he's, you know, instead of just immediately uh, going for the mini bar or just, uh, you know, trying to destroy John, uh, which eventually he does. But but he does have a moment of trying to really it's like when you have a disagreement with someone and instead of just writing him off, you're like, well, maybe we can, you know, sit down and have a breakfast like he's mm -hmm. trying to. He's trying to sort of uh, apply some conflict resolution to this in a way that I think is admirable. Yes. 
And if I'm not jumping ahead too quickly, because I know we have some Dennis conversation to get into as well. Um, but while he's having that conversation, he sits him down. He says, you know what? Let's let's figure this out. Like right now, I don't like you, John, but I want to like you. And I bet you you don't like me. Let's try to bridge this gap because I like me and I'll bet you you like you. So let's talk about each other. Let's give each other some background and start building bridges. So he tells his story. Um, Leslie does. And he's, he explains that his dad was a tugboat captain and his mom had an interest in architecture which led to his interest in engineering and design um and then it's john's turn to talk and this is where it's like how can you be so good at some things and so terrible at others it's so frustrating when john it's his turn to make up a backstory which i'm kind of surprised he didn't already have one for john lakeman um yeah what does he say you his had, parents do you've, you've you've had like 20 international flights Right. Spend one of them coming up with a backstory. And he says, what does your dad do? He's also a tugboat captain. Worst lie you can possibly make up. And then no, what does your mom that's do? that's not true. Then what does your mom yeah. do? Uh, also a tugboat captain. Okay, no, now yeah, that's, that's the rough. worst lie yes, you can ever exactly. <laughs> now, I mean, sorry. I, I wish we lived in a world where it was equally likely that his mom is also a tugboat captain. But that is not the world we live in. And that is a very weird answer to that question. And it's like... I mean, again, it's it's exactly what you said. John is very effective at certain parts of his job, and there are other parts. Now, who knows? Maybe he was better at it before he listened to American Pie for two months. Uh, you know? Like, maybe this is somewhat the result of his brain getting broken. But he is sometimes so bad at – even in that, that piece of uh, intro tape that you played where I forget what – I forget exactly what John says. But it's like – it's slightly off as a response – to Leslie's excitement. Like, I feel like if you or I were in the... Um, do you have that tape? I know we just heard it at the top, but would you mind just playing a little bit more of it or just the part where it's like Leslie's, you know, talking about the breakfast and the breads and it's the optimistic meal and everything. And I forget how exactly it ends, but I just... I was struck by even John's response to it is kind of weird and not like... Not the way people normally talk to each other. Yeah, well, let me... Um, while I call this up, let me finish my thought on why it's such a bad lie, though, because obviously it's a bad lie just because it seems so obvious. And then saying both of my parents are tugboat captains, that's a bad lie because it's just strange credulity, obviously. And I'm kind of surprised that... Um, that Leslie doesn't even question it. He seems to be yeah. questioning John so much. But um, aside from that, it's just a terrible lie because why would you pick the one thing that you're now going to have to bullshit your way through? If you say that your parents did something outside of Leslie's expertise, well, then fine. You're not going to be caught up in lies down the road. But if you say, oh, my dad and mom were both tugboat captains, well, then you better fucking know something. I'm just, now I'm just, yes. oh, damn's broken. I'm swearing like a sailor now. I'm swearing like a tugboat yeah, captain now. Now, suddenly, you have introduced this idea that you will know a lot about the tugboat captaining industry, <laughs> and it's just setting yeah. yourself up for so many traps. So, anyway, you want to re-listen yeah. to the breakfast scene, so here, I'll, I'll hit. I mean, this is going to be, I'm sorry, I'm belaboring this, but I just, I, just the response John gives seemed off to me. I do think that one thing, if I'm remembering it right, and I'll, I'll watch it, and I'll tell you, and I'll be honest, um... This is a scene where I think John, he's pausing a lot because that's his style, um, but he is smiling. And I think, so John smile alert. And I oh, think nice. it's legit. I think it's a legit smile. I think he feels a type of warmth towards everybody, including Leslie. And, mm -hmm. he, and in a certain way, he does like what Leslie is doing here. He's just a terrible liar. But here, let's take a listen. Yes, John. 
Would you like to have a breakfast? In my room, say, the Electress of Saxony. Big smile, great name for the room. Is the, the Electress of Saxony. Well, it's the optimistic meal, John. The days ahead of you. Big smile from John. Let's have a breakfast. Cool. Actually, though, you're right. He falters there. We could do a close-up on his face, and the smile kind of, it goes from authentic to now he looks worried, and he kind of gives a pale smile. So you're right. There is something going on there when he says cool. Do you want me to keep going? Yeah. No, that's okay. I mean, I think we, we pretty much have all seen the episode if we're listening, if you're listening to this, so you probably know. It's just I, I never cease to, it never ceases to not stress me out. I know that's a double negative, but I'm always very stressed out at how difficult it is for John in kind of like interpersonal situations to just give the other person what they want, you know, uh-huh. like, and that's, ve- I, that is very much my, if I have any strong suit in this life, it's that I'm pretty chameleon like, and I'm pretty adept usually at giving people the response they want in the moment. Now, do I follow up? Do I come back for the full breakfast in 10 minutes? Maybe not. But like, it kills me how often John just is kind of like stiffly looking at someone and saying something that I know is not the thing the person is really looking to hear in that moment. Yeah, and he's just weird. And later on, I'm not, I don't want to jump to dissect these scenes later, but when um, Aget is in, interviewing everybody, his colleagues, at least two colleagues, are very put off just by John and his personality and the way he conducts himself, right? Ichabod even says it. He says he's acting erratic because I believe he has secrets. Yeah, Ichabod is really uh, well. First of all, he's the one who wrote Liar. As as I was thinking that it was Stephen Chu for some reason, but then uh, you you sort of alluded to it at the end of the last episode of the show that it's going to be Ichabod. It's funny though because of course Ichabod is barking completely up the wrong tree with John. I mean, I guess not because it is true that he lied about his college. Um, but it's like that's what Ichabod thinks he has him on is basically uh, resume inflation. Yeah, which but is it's, like, it's kind of so funny. much worse than that. Yeah, and you know what that feels for as much as uh, some of this is uh, feels like um, kind of imaginative fancies that seems real to me. Like you could see something unraveling. Like you have a whole mountain of lies of, of mm-hmm. uh, you know nationally backed lies as a spy. Yet one person can be like, wait a second, I was at this college at this time. Or for whatever reason, there's a little red flag and you start you start pulling at that thread. <gasps> the thread, Luke. It all comes back to the loose thread at the beginning of the show. Sorry, I took a huge bong hit before we started talking. Um, no, <laughs> uh, but you start pulling at that thread and then it's kind of like, oh, one small lie could kind of undo the whole thing. Um, let's uh, talk about Dennis for a quick moment because uh, Dennis is really upset and he's upset because he has a herpetic situation that he got from um, a, a hookup with a, uh, a lady of the night, which I have to say in 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 John's defense, he did. A- he's asked Dennis to do a lot. At no time did he ask Dennis to hook up with a prostitute like that was that was freelancing on Dennis's part. Um, I don't. How do I put this? I don't know enough about the interactions of people and uh, hired sex workers, but based on the documentary Pretty Woman, 
that I once saw. I believe the Julia Roberts character was very down on mouth kissing. And I wondered, is that like a real thing? And I don't know why I was obsessed with how did like was he making out with a prostitute who had visible herpetic sores? I don't know how he got that thing on his lip, but he's really mad at John over the fact that he now is going to have to tell his wife about about this this herpy. Yes. And can you just clear up some things for me, hopefully, because this is where I do get confused about some things. You mentioned Numi. That's the young woman who's collecting all the bric-a-brac. Is she also one of the call girls that um, went to the boss? I can't think of the boss's Gills. name. Right? Who, who went to Gills? Well, his, sorry. His real name is Gil Bellows. Um, oh, oh. His, uh, yeah, sorry about his name on the show, which I always have a hard time with for some reason, is... Um, uh, Lawrence LaCroix. Lawrence, right, right, right. So is she one of the call girls yes. who goes to Lawrence's so. room in the first episode, or it's alluded to that he says he spent the night with a couple of Asian women? Well, you know what? I I guess if I'm trying to remember back to that first episode, I guess we – do we very briefly see the women like in a, like a kind of a passing shot? Or is he just talking about them? In the scene where he references them, when he's on the phone, we don't see them. But at some point, I mean, we keep flipping back and forth. We've seen these two right. women before, I think, in some way or another. But uh, So I'm just trying to draw the connection. So her name is Numi, and we are to believe that she is both the woman who has been kind of stealing and collecting all these things, and including the red bag, who somehow her passport ended up in the safe of the bag right. man. Uh, Kandahar yeah. is his name. I didn't even know that. Um, and sh so she's kind of involved in this in many ways. And are we to also believe that she is one of the people that Dennis has visited? I'm a little unclear as to what John's end game was as far as having I don't Dennis think, call this call girl service. I don't think that uh, Dennis vis visited her. I don't think she's really a call girl. If I remember right, and okay. this might even be from a future episode. Again, there's so much jumping around in time. I can't keep it straight. I get the feeling. I think her friend basically says, do you want to make some easy money? All you do is you go and you don't even have to have sex with the guy. I, if I remember right, it's just, you know, basically they just go kind of like they go rough Lawrence LaCroix up in some right. fashion and they're getting paid a lot of money. I, I don't think that she's. I you know I don't think that she's like a call girl is really her thing. I think that she just her friend says you're going to make money. You don't have to have sex with the dude, and so she goes along with it. Um, but I don't think that, that that's like her nine to five job. But somehow Lawrence is like somehow somehow their commissions not to not to belabor this, but somehow they're commissioned through a call girl service because everything you said is ringing a bell to me now. But you know he didn't call an artist. These two women sound like they're artists. Um, or at least we'll kind well, of reveal the, I later. I think the that friend is. is not okay, not Numi, but the other one whose name I don't know. Numi is an artist, a puppeteer, and all that. The other one I think probably is more involved, a little bit has more of a kind of one foot in the world of that, you know, like some sort of Sex sexual work, service yeah. for hire. And so I think she, and again, I think this might even be in a future episode. Uh, I think she kind of like brings Numi in on it. Which okay, is how, yeah. how she how those worlds collide, um, and of course uh, we're going to find out more also what her interaction with Kandahar is because, like you said, he's got her passport in a safe that is dropped out of the uh, hotel window. Uh, there is this moment to talk back about the Dennis thing. There is that moment where John goes running after Dennis, and th it's, it's that interesting scene where basically John's like, "No more, Mister Nice Guy." 
in the words <laughs> of Alice Cooper, who's been really woven through all of our podcast enterprises of late, uh, where John says something to the effect of like, you know, whatever that thing is you think I can't do, I'll do it. He's basically saying, I'll fucking kill you. Yeah, which raises an interesting question for me. I mean, that's a really emotional uh, moment there. I think it's a really powerful moment in the show. But yeah. logistically, let's think about that for a second. So we know that John has uh, both the ability to kill somebody. In many ways, he has killer instincts. We see him fly into action without thinking when his bag is stolen and he sees it zipping away on a scooter. Um so he has the kind of emotional side down, but in a one-on-one, really Dennis could rip him apart, right? But I guess the point is Dennis would never have the mindset to be able to actually probably hurt somebody, whereas John would, if if it came down to it, could find a way to kill Dennis. Because that's kind of like, could you kill Dennis? You mean just because Dennis is so much more buff? Yeah, basically. I don't think um, – I don't th- – think that it's about buffness i think it's about knowing how to you know eye gouge at the sure right moment yeah or yeah whatever that's true. Yeah. so i think i'm still taking john in a fight just because it's what john does yeah um but you're right i mean there are definitely dennis's dennis is a fit guy and he's which this is you know again i don't want to jump into the other part of the stephen conrad verse or the chris conrad verse because it's the guy that plays dennis but he plays a character in Perpetual Grace Limited, this other show that's out on Epics right now, and he is not in shape at all. And he's shirtless for, like, m- most of the episodes I've seen so far. And I was like, oh, man, was that killing Chris Conrad to basically gain, like, 30 or 40 pounds? Uh, yeah. Um, or was it a relief? <laughs> yeah. Did he, did he hate – like, which – which is the real Chris Conrad? Is it Buff Dennis? I assume it's probably more that direction, I or this so. other guy that he's playing in Perpetual Grace, because uh, one of them is not him. But anyway, uh, but yeah, that's an intense scene because it's like uh, to, up to this point, Dennis has just been so thrilled at being included on these missions, and he's very you know obsessed with whether or not he's friends or best friends with John, and. I mean, honestly, I feel like there was probably a way that John could have de-escalated it without just – I mean, he just – he basically applied the nuclear option there. It was just like, we're not friends. You're somebody who I will kill if you endanger this mission is is what's what's being said in that tunnel. Yeah, which – I don't know, man. He tried talking to Dennis a lot mm-hmm. before he finally said yeah. that, and nothing was getting through. It's it's kind of funny, although, you know, I guess uh, challenge the verisimilitude when uh, his dad says, can you just stab him in the leg or something? I already tried yeah. that. Like, that's just yeah. the go-to. Can you just stab him in the leg or something? But yeah. in this case, he really did. You know what I'm remembering now? The reason I was thinking, like, but could you kill Dennis is... You can't even keep up with Dennis. And I think that was mm-hmm. what put me in that mindset because I think there's something mm-hmm. there, too. The fact that in so many – he's not just buff. Like, he can outrun John if need be. Sure. But, again, John can sneak up on you, I guess, and put a thermometer in your ear or however he would do it. But, um, but yeah, I do feel like he did everything he could, and he realized like – saying I will kill you we're not friends or implying we're not friends I will kill you was kind of like that was the the knife in the leg like he had to yes he had to kind of it was go worse to it. yeah I mean listen Dennis was still friends with him after he stabbed him in the leg yeah. he did not in any way uh, dampen Dennis's enthusiasm for being friends with John yeah but telling him I'll kill you if you ruin this for me uh 
that's you know that's going to really change the dynamic, I guess, of their of their of their friendship going forward because now it's it's clear what it's really about for him. Oh, and by the way, uh, there was a moment where I was sort of proud of John for kind of standing up to Tom. Listeners to this podcast know some real issues with Tom's parenting style. Like when Tom is giving him shit over the luggage tag, it's like I. You know, why did you put your name on the luggage tag? It's like, well, because if this thing just got normally lost, like happens, and they couldn't find me, you'd be mad at me about that, which mm-hmm. I thought was a really good point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, Tom accepts it, too. He accepts the point, if yes. I recall. He's like, yeah, that's a good point. Can I just say one thing that um, we kind of skipped over, and it was just like literally my favorite moment in in the show, or at least in this episode, uh, that had me... It's got to be the biggest laugh I've had up to this point, which is um, after he stands up Leslie for breakfast and Mm -hmm. then he is on the elevator with Leslie and Leslie starts just dressing him down in no uncertain terms. I mean, he finally just lets the torrent out about what a mess up john is now i'm cleaning up my act what a mess up john yeah. is and how on a, personal, on a personal and professional level he's a total loser and he's disrespectful and all these things and then the elevator doors open and the boss lawrence mm. comes in and they're both quiet <laughs> right now and he just looks at both of them and kind of smiles then turns around and the show does that perfectly <laughs> just like really lets the moment sink in they're riding the elevator down silently we see over the shoulder shots of all of them and then you just hear lawrence say weird energy in here like that is yeah that was such a laugh line i was dying i had to i had to rewind it because i was probably laughing for like five minutes after that i totally have that written down in my notes i just have gil i keep calling him gil because that's his real name weird energy in here right in the elevator because that stood out too that whole elevator scene is is intense because again every time john gets into an elevator it ends up being a thing where there's like three or four different people that want a piece of him for yeah. different reasons in the same elevator. It's Stay like out pipe. of the Take the stairs. It's like the pipe that we saw at the beginning of the season and we're going to see more of where John is uh, when he's in Milwaukee and he goes to that pipe outside to do his thinking and then people kind of keep on coming up to him. It's kind of like the elevator is the pipe of Luxembourg. Uh, there was one other thing that I noticed, and I know that I'm very obsessed with this sort of like is Tom good at his job or not thing. But I just have this written down that basically like, so, uh, so Tom has to duck into the, uh, into Dennis's adjoining room so that he won't be seen when Leslie comes in to talk to John. And when he goes in there, he realizes that Dennis has this herpetic situation. Dennis is threatening to make some calls. And then what I noticed was Tom, basically, as soon as Leslie leaves, Tom is like, John, can you get in here and handle this? Mm-hmm. And I was like, aren't you also able to handle things? I mean, I know you don't know each other, but it was kind of like it's almost like the dad is saying to the son, hey, can you come in here, please, and fix this for me? Now, maybe that's just because the idea is that John has a preexisting relationship with Dennis. But I was like, you know, you're supposed to be some kind of, you know, <laughs> trained spy person yourself, Tom Tavner. And, but it's also um, it's we're starting to see a different side of Tom. Um, because talk about dehumanizing, he really like talks down to Dennis in a way that we have not seen him talk down to anybody. Like he's manipulated both of his sons. He's manipulated and, and had heart to heart with, uh, his daughter-in-law, Alice. 
Um, and those are most of the interactions we've seen him have. We've seen him on a professional level talk to colleagues. But this is the first time where he's talking to somebody that he just doesn't think is worth the time. And he will refer yeah. to Dennis in the third person to John. Like, is he – I can't remember what he says. Like, what's his name again? His name's Dennis, right? Like, right in front of Dennis, not like your name's Dennis, right? And it's the first I, – I don't, I don't hate it, and especially in the context of the show. I kind of like seeing how – um, I, I don't know how different characters react to one another, but it's a real he is he has no time or patience for this pissant Dennis. Yeah, um, I uh, so a get shows up and she's, you know, going around to to interview people. And I just thought there was this I loved the moment when Ichabod talks about generally being nervous around women. And then, you know, he was part of this kind of crew of everyone calling their wife at about 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. And Aget says something like, you say you're intimidated by women. And he's like, uh, that includes my wife. <laughs> yes. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. You know, I forgot. Um, I kind of ruined that elevator story, though, because I forgot it's not just Leslie and John in the elevator. It starts with Ichabod confronting John about calling yeah. him a liar. And so you already have Ichabod and John having a really weird conversation. Then Leslie comes in and yells at him in front of Ichabod. So you have all that going on. And then he says, weird energy in here. Yeah. I I mean, again, it's like this is how the show is designed. But Leslie sitting there with the full breakfast mm-hmm. and just his anger boiling. I wanted, like, I've seen this episode now twice, but upon second watching, I was like, maybe he'll get back in time. Maybe he'll get there. <laughs> root for him. That's one of the most Wes Anderson shots of the whole show so far. Yes. I believe, him sitting behind the whole spread. Uh, you know, there's this uh, whole thing going on at the police station of take your daughter to work day, which kind of plays into or creates a, the situation where. John can keep running into Aget's daughter who says, you know, basically, I guess she thinks he's a ghost or a hallucination because she keeps seeing him everywhere. Yes. At some point, she kind of says that in the later on in this episode that I don't I don't believe you're real because I keep seeing you, which is an interesting take. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got like so many near misses with this bag. Uh, that it's just like, you know, it's torture, but in the best way, because he keeps almost getting his hands on it. You've got this, everyone's almost finding out that there's money in the bag, but then they aren't because everybody just selfishly wants to do the least amount of work mm-hmm. possible, you know? So you got this, the dynamics, uh, the structural dynamics of the of the Luxembourg police mm-hmm. and the fact that the, these guys are, you know, tasked with, with, with identifying all this evidence and uh, they don't want to do it and they keep trying to push it off on the kind of female division and this bag is just kind of migrating around. Um, one thing that I was uh, kind of surprised by when uh, I get started interviewing people was how totally honest Lawrence was about his hooker hangout. Mm-hmm. Was that surprising to you? I think maybe the first time I watched it, maybe it was a little surprising. I love her reaction when she says, even in the places where it is illegal – it's not really illegal or something along the line, not against the law. She says, even in the places where it is against the law, it's probably not really against the law or something along those lines. Meaning that like, Hey, listen, as long as, you know, everybody is consenting adults. I have no, I have no issue with that. I think it's really interesting. This is the first time that we find out that McMillan is bankrupt and that I'm a little confused. How could these businessmen be going over here and thinking that they're working on a contract when really they're all pitching a contract? I mean, Lawrence has really set up a house of cards here. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I always wonder that about Bernie Madoff. Yeah. Just the, the paperwork involved in 
trying to – the paperwork involved in just pretending to do what Bernie Madoff was doing seems so mm-hmm. – like such a hassle. Like you'd need to have 10 people literally just generating the false paperwork. So you wonder – you know, Lawrence is you know tricking all these people, but it seems like that's kind of a tall order in and of itself to get all these people who think that the contract is a done deal, but in fact they are just one of a – number of companies that are trying to get the contract you could see um, the people like dennis maybe not realizing that but the fact that leslie doesn't know that is shocking right um and that let's see uh other what, what am i leaving out here what jumped out at you about this kind of section of the episode basically the interviews and the bag moving around the police station and all of that well you know the the interview part really reminded me of just how good a get is as both a character and as an actress like she is she has a way of being i mean she's obviously just strikingly beautiful and the way the camera the way they frame her in those shots i mean the first thing you notice is she's just an incredibly beautiful person obviously but it's so much more than that she has a mesmerizing quality in these interviews which makes people talk even people like um Ichabod, who who's nervous around women. I mean, that's one thing too. Like everybody's being weirdly honest in in this, right? From right. Ichabod saying, "Yeah, I've, I've been I, I've been uncomfortable around women since since when? Since I was born." Like, what a weird way to yeah, begin right. it, right? But everybody's a little bit weird. And um, uh, Kirkwood, uh, uh, the way Leslie, um, did I say Kirkwood? I keep doing that. It's Kurtwood, right? Kurtwood Kurt, Smith. Kurtwood Smith. Right. But I, I don't blame you. Kurtwood is not a real name. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the way Leslie is just using it to, to like, be super honest. We find out that Leslie still calls an old number that is his ex-wife's number. I, I assume that yes. his ex-wife is still alive, right? He's, he's not a widower yeah. after seeing the I think she's just moved, probably, because yeah. of the, you know, relationship dissolving. Yeah. There is this kind of confessional, like... I'm expecting everybody to go into those get interviews and to just lie through their teeth. And it's like it's it's almost like this kind of, you know, moment where everyone is being their most honest. Lawrence is talking about his, you know, his hang for prostitutes. He's talking about the company being bankrupt. Ichabod is talking about his fear of women like uh, everybody is everybody. Everybody. Leslie is talking about calling his, you know, no longer active number. Everybody is really bearing their souls to her. And not really, and, and, and doing it in a pretty unflinching way, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Yeah. Again, it's kind of the style of the show. Um, but yeah, and, and the way that she is both captivating on the screen, but it also comes off as her being captivating to the people that she's talking with as well. I can't tell if, if that's kind of the takeaway there, that she is just has a way. I mean, she's such a good uh, investigator and communicator, which again, kind of, not to not to nitpick, but kind of belies that line from a, a few episodes ago where she's talking to her daughter and saying, yeah, I'm really having trouble with the, the language difference here. I had trouble ordering lunch right. in the United States. Like, really? You're getting grown men to, like, bear their souls without hesitation in your second language. <laughs> like, I think you can order an impossible Whopper. But uh, anyway, I do love I, I love this scene. I just lo- I love the way it's intercut with. um with her uh, doing the interviews and then um, seeing the other plots happen at the same time, the the red bag that is doing 
anything but going from A to B. The way Lawrence yes. explains the whole concept of the show, that it's not about piping, it's about A to B, whatever that may be. Yes. And the things that get in the way of moving an object from A to B can be anything from... What does he say? From gravity to tomfoolery? Oh, yeah. Does he say tomfoolery something or something like that. along That's those great. lines? Are you able to jump to that scene? Because, yeah, yeah I, love, this. I, I love the way he describes the things that are impediments. By the way, the structural dynamics of no would describe <laughs> what's would be, going on with the bag. Good, yes. Um, um, now, yeah, it no, that's like around that. a lot, so i got to find the right part here. But, yeah, like that is just a... I mean, that's such a uh, – we've already sort of referenced it, but I have to say, like, it had not occurred to me really the kind of profundity of that, I guess, this idea that really – you know, some that has been said everything is sales, and that's, I think, kind of true in a way. But it's also like most things, it really just comes down to the structural dynamics of flow. In fact, we may have the only jobs that that doesn't really apply to. <laughs> yeah, anything right. else that's more rooted in the real world of the making of things and the selling of things and the getting of things from point A to point B – it's really about just flow, right? Absolutely. We are definitely the structural dynamics of no on this show, though. Yeah. Um, I am getting a little bit closer to that now. I have a fraternity podcast I'm launching called The Structural Dynamics of Bro, <laughs> uh, which I think is going to be pretty good. Look I, for that. I keep thinking that uh, the structural dynamics of flow is somehow going to involve flow from um, the progressive commercial. <laughs> progressive. So it's always a, it's I always would, a little I bit of a watch that. <laughs> right? that would be what a great, like, what a great walk on just in the background somewhere flow yes what uh courtney i can't think of oh, her wow. name Look at you. what is her name courtney something but anyway i'm, I'm just stalling here while i'm trying to get to this dang scene uh i think i've got it right here okay here it is she says describe the basic nature of your work describe the basic nature of your work industrial piping we create the structural dynamics to deliver elements from A to B, and we provide services concerning the vulnerabilities of that expectation. Which expectation? The simple delivery of an element from A to B. We consult concerning the obstacles, challenges, and insecurities that come up against the simple act of delivering an element from one place to another. To name a few, uh, attrition, Gravity, mischief, calamity, <laughs> incompetence, also erosion, contraction, expansion, buffoonery. Buffoonery! <laughs> and then we get into the scene where um, so the bag great. gets rejected from the, from the official storage room. Uh, yeah, no, that is amazing. I, I mean, that those sentences right there, that is giving structure to the entire show. Like, I, I like after you see this episode, then I just feel like everything else clicks into place for this show. Yeah, like it just yeah, it's, it's again, I'm, I'm, I'm really obsessing over this, but it is it's a fairly profound thought to just like think about how hard it is to just get things to work the way they're supposed to work and how how basically nature i mean you know i guess what what is that's entropy right you know what i mean mm -hmm. it's like the forces of entropy are trying to always make it so things don't flow um but but uh but but what they do is try to keep everything on track that's right now the other really really big thing although it happens pretty quickly uh during the interviews other than like basically everybody certainly ichabod and leslie um, kind of selling out John. I don't really like. Yeah, the word it could selling not out. go worse, right. For John, like I watch, I watch a lot of those, like you know, 
uh, documentary style crime shows and where they're interviewing people the first 48 and like if one of these things that gets dropped on John would have dro- gets dropped on a normal person the, the police are all over it there's like a litany of things he's doing that are just giant giant red flags right and Turns out she's been holding a, an ace. Is that the right uh, terminology, Mr. Poker Player? She's been holding yes. an ace up her sleeve or That's something. A good card. <laughs> um, she's been holding a two of clubs. Uh, she's, that could also work depending uh, on the flop. <laughs> sure. She's referring to, or she's uh, kind of looking down and, and uh, referring to a, a document she has that says when these guys made phone calls. She can see from the phone records, which apparently is. A, you know, she somehow legally was able to obtain these phone records in Luxembourg. And we see that the call that John made was to somebody named Alice and it's highlighted in blue. And we see that she's already knows that. So she's already connected this fake character of John Lakeman with the real John Tavner's wife. And that is problematic for John. Indeed. Meanwhile, uh, uh, um, I want. I always want to call him Cool Rick. Yeah, uh, Edward. But of course, yeah. His name is Edward. Uh, when he get, when he puts the sweatsuit on, he's just Cool Rick to me. Meanwhile, Cool Rick is trying to get this. He's trying to write John's name into that little card thingy that goes into a book um, at the library. Structural dynamics of flow. But when he gets there, he can't find the book. Now, I've watched the episode two times. You think I would remember it, but for some reason it's escaping me at the moment. Why is the book not there? What is going on with the book? So we are – and I think I realized this more in hindsight after watching more episodes, but it, it does make sense within the context of this episode, which is while Lawrence is explaining that he is one of five companies comp- – is it five or four? Yeah, I think he is one of five companies – uh, bidding on this Denon contract, that means that there are four other companies in town and they're all mm. focusing on what? Got the it. structural dynamics of flow. So as we're kind of seeing all these scenes intercut and we're learning that, we're seeing just hands, we don't know who they belong to, uh, pulling the book off the shelves because the idea being that everybody, all the other competitors are also going to the library so that they can bone up on their presentations to hopefully win the contract. And so by the time uh, cool Rick Edward gets to the library, yeah. the other four competitors have already taken the books off the shelves. That's my understanding. Which of is it. funny. Yeah. Leslie literally wrote the book. Yes. And do this. we know that? Do we see that in this episode? Do we see the author? Oh, maybe that's in a, maybe that comes up later. Um, so, yeah, Rick is uh, Edward is running around trying to fix that. Um, and then there is. A moment of filmmaking that just will stay with me for my whole life, which is the grabbing of the tag with his name on it. It's like a stress dream. It is. Exactly. It is a living stress dream of and I, I, you know, I travel a lot for work and I get a lot of those dumb things put on my bag when they're going to have to gate check it. And sometimes when I'm feeling lazy and I don't want to, like, unloop it or untie it, I try to break those little elastic things. They're surprisingly rugged. <laughs> they really so, are. Like, you need to they cut don't... it with something. <laughs> That's what, of course, this is, you know, it's a more interesting show because he didn't do this. But what I was what I was thinking was like, bro, tear the tag. Yeah, pull out <laughs> tear your keys. Tear the tag. Get that knife that you, <laughs> that you right. seem to love to use so much. This would be an uh, appropriate use of that knife. 
such a perfect scene, though, the way that that tag is just getting – I mean, it's always just – everything is always just right outside of his reach mm-hmm. um, or, or just not – almost coming together but not quite. And that's a perfect moment. He actually grabs the tag, but then uh, – I who is it? Is it uh, – who's – Aged is coming around the corner? Someone's coming around the corner is why he has to let go of the tag, right? Yes, it's not a get. It's one of the other uh, investigators, and this ah. is what what I want to say again, not to maybe not to overanalyze or, or sound like the the sophomore stoners that we keep on referring to, but um, for me, it's really really powerful as he's chasing this bag around and he finds himself in the homicide office or what is derisively referred to as the uh, skirts and stockings. Uh, area where the bag has ended up again uh, because everybody's just all the detectives are just dumping their refuse in there Uh, and then John walks in and he sees the marker board he sees what Aget and her team have been figuring out and he sees his name or his fake name his nom de plume uh, John Lakeman up there but then we see connected to that is Alice Taylor and now this is the first time he realizes wow the noose is really closing like Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Tavner, right. You know what it looked like? I just looked at it and it looked like Taylor, but yeah, it must be Tavner, of course. Anyway, so he's there and he sees he sees his name, then he sees his wife's real name connected to his fake name. That's really bad. Again, I can't stress that enough that it, it, his cover is about to be blown. Um, then he sees uh, the little girl, Aget's daughter, is kind of hiding behind the computer, and that's when she says, um, I, I'm starting to believe you're not real because I see you everywhere. And then... That detective, who uh, he had to let go of the tag for, as you were saying, walks into the room and says, excuse me, can I help you, or what are you doing here? And I want to take a listen to this. Can I help you? Can I help you? I lost my way. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's very specific language, right? that of is like course. his dad yes. singing that song about, I thought I knew what train yes. I was on, but I guess I'm on the wrong train or I don't know if I'm on the right train yeah. anymore. I've lost my way. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. That's so, uh, yeah, that's, that's about more than just why he's standing in that room uh, at that point. Uh, it, although it is related to why he's standing in the room. He is, he is at this point really, really lost his way. I wondered at one point, I mean, he's got bigger problems. Well, does he? I was going to say, Sometimes I wonder, like, well, I, this doesn't make any sense because the show, it, you know, would just the show would be over or something. But like, would it be a complete and total deal breaker if he just leveled with some of the people in his life, like a get, like, or even the McMillan people? Like, if he was like, look, here's the deal: I work for the U.S. government. I'm trying to stop Iran from getting a nuclear bomb. I did have to kill uh, a Barros brother. Because uh, you know what I mean? Like he's because here's the thing that we tend I tend to forget sometimes when I'm watching. John is not actually being nefarious. John's ultimate goal is trying to uh, uh, assure the safety of a region of people in the Middle East or in the, you know, countries neighboring Iran, particularly Israel, and to some degree the U.S. Like he is he's doing all of this shit to try to actually make the world a safer place like and so sometimes I wish he, I wish he could just tell people because there's actually an explanation behind all the shit he's doing. Well, he told Dennis that worked yeah, out for him. That worked out well. <laughs> the wrong person to tell. Certainly, exactly. I know what you mean, and that's where you got to kind of believe in like the. Um, 
I guess because I get to that point too. I'm like, at a certain point, this gets so big that you would just say, government to government, listen, this is what's going on. This guy's this guy right. who you know is John Lakeman. He's like, you bring in the big guns. But then I just think that the whole point of this is that, and, and we see this in the deposition that Tom is giving, you know, kind of intercut throughout the throughout the season that. Tom is out here on his own and therefore John is out there on his own because they're not doing this. This isn't um, what's the word I'm looking for. This isn't uh, approved uh, authorized. Or, or authorized exactly by the government so that therefore he has to keep it a secret because there isn't like, you know, a secretary of state who can jump in officially. I mean, there was a little bit that guy who worked for the State Department who was trying to do yeah. some, you know, under the table uh, cover for, for playing them, racquetball, but then he died playing racquetball. And of course, uh, the very last thing that I will mention uh, that was on my notes is we gotta give a little credit to uh, Cool Rick, right, for actually losing yeah. his tail. <laughs> like he's yes. being followed all over the city by the investigator. I had her name. I can't. Uh, is it Sophia? I want to say. Um, and uh, and he finally does lose her by going on a bus and then jumping off of the moving bus. It almost goes very sideways for him. But with a little he has too much flair. He has too much flair. But I mean, that you know, watch flashes of John. Yeah. No, he does. He, you know what? He gets the job done. I just am like. He's just a little turd out there, mm -hmm. you know, like with his sweatsuits and his I mean, you know, it's a great character because it's like because he's so different than John. But it's like his Beastie Boys outfits and his like overly flashy watch that almost, you know, gets him trapped on that bus. And it's just like all this stuff that, you know, he's wearing those sweatsuits because he thinks it makes him cool. But it's like so uncool. And but yeah, ultimately, he does accomplish the mission. So you got to give him or at least he, he loses his tail. So you got to give him credit for that. It's exactly what the NFL is trying to tell Odell Beckham Jr. with his plastic watch. Don't worry. That reference will stay relevant forever. That is what we call a timeless joke. Yes. Well, as they say, Odell is other people. <laughs> they do joke say I just that. made up. <laughs> they do say that. <laughs> Uh, anything else that we should uh, that we left out or forgot to uh, cover about this episode? Not really. I just wanted to make sure that I gave uh, Cool Rick his due there for uh, actually. Do well, of course, the mission was still a bust. <laughs> Unfortunately, he, it takes him so long to ditch the investigator that by the time he gets to the library, all the books are gone. Oh, here's a question I had. Uh, there was this one little moment. I uh, the note I have is uh, John is Tom Tavnering on his brother regarding the structural dynamics of flow book. Mm -hmm. He tells him yes. just do it. You kind of see it. Yeah. a moment where John just kind of like he does a pulls of he pulls a Tom where it's just like just make it happen. You know. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, also uh, there was some I have cakewalk written down. There was a passing reference to cakewalk. Do you remember that? I don't a cakewalk. I don't know. There was some little moment where where. I think they said something like they were they they were calling something a cakewalk and they were it was it basically made me it, it indicated there was some backstory to using the term cakewalk. Maybe somebody had called something a cakewalk and it turned out to not be. I didn't know. I just wrote that down and I thought maybe you knew the answer to that, but it's No, like no, I'm not sure. I guess one other thing that I'm just kind of remembering now 
and I uh, don't really have a good point for this, but it's a very effective scene when we see the chemist's wife. Did you say her name before? Do we know her name? I can't remember. Uh, no, the the bag man, the Jay Wick Sands guy. I saw his name is Kandahar. Right, but I think, but the 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 woman I don't know her name who wears the you know the the yeah the burka the burka, and we we don't see her much. But there's this really kind of moving scene where we see her at a public fountain, and she takes off her socks and dips her feet in the water and it's a close up on her feet and it's like a very tactile thing and and she does it very very slowly and carefully and then we just again there's there's something about the show that actress but also the direction of the show where they do such an amazing job of showing so much emotion and reaction while only showing about an eighth of her face and it's her eyes right. and that was so moving to see that scene yeah you get the feeling that it's like this is a level of freedom that she has not enjoyed before mm-hmm. in her life and that something – a switch has been flipped when and, her feet hit that water. Yeah, and the fact that that's how they choose to show it because even if you're somebody who grew up in our culture and you kind of have that – you've had that feeling a million times in your life, there's still something about sitting on the edge of a dock or a pier or a fountain or whatever it is with your clothes on and then the first moment that you kind of dip your feet in the water it's both you know it is a little it's a little shocking to the system right it's such a very specifically human sensation that thing Mm -hmm. and i love that that's how they decided to kind of show that i I honestly think it's genius yeah the many genius elements of this particular episode of what is overall a genius show although Mm -hmm. i'll say this andrew i don't i have not watched the end of this show like we we had an event for the other podcast we do tbtl we're talking to lots of people there about patriot and pretty much everybody except me has watched this show all the way to the end yeah that is Um, true that's right yes i kind of know in a certain way the least about it of of somebody wrote on reddit about our podcast these guys are new to the show but they get it and i was like ouch i'm a newbie but i guess i kind of am because i literally don't know how the last you know four or five episodes go so that'll be especially exciting for me um anyway that is uh, still to come this week's episode is all done uh, thanks uh, for listening, everybody, and uh, until we see you next week, uh, keep it double great. There's a man who leads a life of danger. Everyone he meets, he stays a stranger. With every move he makes, another chance he takes. Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow. Secret agent man, secret agent man They've given you a number and taken away your name Weird energy in here 